the Blaze Radio Network. On demand. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. So excited to be here. Glad you're here. I got to tell you, I am uh, very disappointed right now, though. You know, uh, his YouTube videos. Now, we were not going to make a YouTube video. I just want to be very clear. This would have been for our own personal amusement. Uh, But kids eating lemons for the first time. Have you seen these? Oh, they're hilarious. They're so stinking funny. So went to the Jacks, my son's nine-month doctor's appointment yesterday. And the doctor said, it's game on with food. You can do whatever now. Whatever you eat, you he can eat. So I said, including lemons? He said, lemons. I said, perfect. So this morning, not 10 minutes ago, we did Jack's lemon torture. <laughs> challenge, challenge. I mean, challenge. Loved it. He loved the lemon. He couldn't get enough of it. He kept eating it. And we're videotaping and waiting for some hilarious thing, and he totally won. So I guess that's what we get for being parents, using him for our own amusement. I didn't tell my wife this, but this is one of the main reasons I wanted to have kids, was for the lemon challenge. And Jack just totally ruined it. (laughs) Um, Lots to do, as always. Quick note, uh, I wrote a book an ebook. Uh, it's called how to change someone's mind. We're going to talk. It comes out on Monday. Uh, you can pre-order it now. You just go to the, uh, search for the Mike Slater show on Facebook. You'll see a link to Amazon right there. You can pre-order it. Uh, it comes out on Monday on ebook. It'll come out in a couple days on paperback and should be available on Monday in audiobook too. So you have all those three options. Um, we'll talk more about it next week. But just want to give you a heads up. If you would like to pre-order that, you can go ahead and do that. And that would be awesome. And someone wrote me on Facebook the other day. What's it about? I, th- I think they were joking, but I'm not sure. It's about how to change someone's mind. It's not about how to win an argument. I want to be very clear because if you buy this book thinking it's, it's going to help you win an argument, it will not do that. That's not what it's about. Uh, winning an argument is, is very different than changing someone's mind. Winning an argument is very easy, actually. Uh, You just talk more confidently than the other person and you can win. But what good is that? Because we don't just want to win arguments. That just creates more division. Ultimately, Uh, we need uh, need to gain allies. We we want people to agree with us. So how do you actually change someone's mind? That's what the book's about. uh, I wrote it to be read in an hour. So it's a quick, short read, and I hope you enjoy it. Again, go to the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. want to talk uh, the launching pad is going to be Trump's speech from Poland because I got a lot more to say about it but I'm not going to talk specifically about the speech uh, for the whole three hours but really that the bigger picture is culture remember last week we talked about Trump's speech in Poland in Warsaw and he gave a a full and complete well not complete but a, a very good defense of the West of Western civilization And we talked about how progressives criticized Trump doing this because to them, the West equals white Christians. And if you dare defend white Christians, 
then you're a bigot and a homophobe and an Islamophobe and all these other awful things. Jonah Goldberg said that we have reached a pathetic and dangerous point in our culture where anyone who celebrates our traditional culture, our country, and now our civilization must be doing so for base and evil reasons. All other cultures must be celebrated while every ill is blamed on us. Of course, talked about that a million different times, and this was a very good example of that. So I want to use that as a launching pad to a bunch of other uh, conversations here. 25 years ago, Alan Bloom wrote a book called The Closing of the American Mind. And uh, I want to quote a little bit here. He said, this is, again, 25 years ago. In the university, this means that this is just the down, just downfall of uh, intellectual thought. <laughs> this means classes devoted to pop novels rock videos, and third-rate works chosen simply because their authors are member of the requisite sex, ethnic group, or social minority. It means students will graduate not having read Milton or Dante or Shakespeare, or what is in some ways even worse, have been taught to regard the works of such authors chiefly as hunting grounds for examples of patriarchy, homophobia, imperialism, etc. This is the key line. It means faculty and students who regard education as an exercise in disillusionment and who look to the past only to corroborate their sense of superiority and self-satisfaction. I want to break that last line down there because that is good. That was 25 years ago. So what we're seeing on college campuses isn't new now. Uh, it's just being perfected and it's, it's hit the tipping point where now it's almost the entirety of it, but it's nothing new. So the point is that progressives only look to the past, according to Alan Bloom, oh, and, and I agree, only look to the past to find new ways to hate America, new reasons to hate white people, new examples of why Christians are the worst, all for the overall theme of why the West is bad. And what we see in our culture today that we're going to talk about for the next couple hours is the fruit of that labor, right? You have the people who grew up with what Alan Bloom was describing. Those people are now in charge or about to be. And here we are, not too long ago, and, and probably you, uh, if you went to college, had it was a required course, Western Civ. Those don't exist anymore. And, and where they do, uh, I read a great blog post from uh, a writer called Neo Neocon, and she said, where Western civilization is still taught, it's presented as a toxic stain on humanity, a poisonous brew of intolerance and exploitation of suffering non-Westerns people, only to be studied, to be condemned. So before, usually the, the format of kind of how we do segments is I'll explain the problem and then the solution. Uh, I want to flip that today and I want to start off here with what it should look like. Right? We never want to end a segment with just complaining. That's empty. We want to like highlight what's going, what's wrong, and then provide a solution. I'm going to flip it here, though. I want to provide the alternative, and it's not hypothetical. I want to go back and, and not, not go backwards to condemn, but to go backwards to look for guidance and wisdom. So first, I'm going to read something, and then I want to play something so we can hear it. This was an article in the New Republic magazine. It was published seven years ago about Winston Churchill. This author wrote, the Ultimate issue for Churchill was the advance of civilization. By the way, let me stress this again. 
maybe you missed last week or you missed this analysis. Trump said the word civilization, Western civilization, 10 times in his speech in Warsaw. And people on the left saw that as a dog whistle, a dog whistle, because what he meant by Western civilization was white people, white Christians, and really Nazis. That's they heard. That's they heard the dog whistle. But it wasn't that long ago when celebrating, encouraging Western civilization was self-evident. It was, let alone not controversial. It was well, yeah, of course. So anyway, the ultimate issue for Churchill was the advance of civilization, by which he meant the British and Western way of life. It's liberal laws, excuse me, liberal values, laws, culture, industry, and science. Liberal in that sense means like free. He saw Britain and its empire as propagators of civilization. He came to see the United States also as a guarantor of civilization. Now, Churchill considered Nazism vile and barbaric, a rejection of civilization in every way, which, quick time out, proves how absurd the notion that when you say Western civilization, you mean white Christian, because we spent a lot of time fighting white Christians known as Nazis. So they were white, but they had nothing to do with Western civilization. They were a rejection of Western civilization. So it has nothing to do with race whatsoever. Churchill's overwhelming love of country and civilization, his firm conviction that individuals can overcome adversity, his belief that great leaders can redirect global forces, and his uplifting oratory abilities allowed Churchill to shape the thoughts and feelings of his countrymen and save the country and civilization. That was only seven years ago when that was written, and the word civilization at that time was an acceptable word and an acceptable concept. But we have reached a tipping point today where if you say the word civilization, then you're a bigot. Western civilization used to be presented as something good, something worth saving, something worth fighting for and dying for. And it was a non-controversial fact. It was a truth among all truths. And today, if you say it, you're a Nazi. See how far we've fallen in that? That is insane. So what does it sound like? What does a defense of Western values sound like? I want to play a little bit here of one of Churchill's speeches. It's called the, uh, the Finest Hour Speech. Um, the whole speech is about good and evil. And and keep in mind when Churchill's saying this, um, it's before the Battle of Britain. It's before the Nazis uh, really invade. And the future of, of mankind depends on this battle. These are the stakes. And Churchill knew it. Others didn't, which is what gives evil power. But Churchill confronted the evil and inspired more people to confront it as well with this speech right here, 1588. What General Vagon calls the Battle of France is over. I expect that the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, 
will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. Trump, two weeks ago, said the fundamental question of our time is whether the West has the will to survive. If a lot of these progressives who are against Trump's speech the other day, if they were in charge, if they represent a minority view, then the answer is no. one 888 Now, if we fail, well, let me give you an example next of the alternative of what you just heard from the great Winston Churchill. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. On The Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. I got a clip here I want to play from Monty Python's The Life of Brian. Uh, if you've never seen it, it's about a guy, Brian, who was born in the stable next to Jesus. And the three wise men come and they, they, you know, they follow the star and they get close, but they're just one stable over and they think that Brian is Jesus and uh, hilarity ensues. I think it's, it's interesting that this comedy was made in 1979 could only work if people know the story of Jesus, right? So, so for it to have been made and to have been received by an audience, like in order for the, in order for the jokes to, for, in order for the irony to be there, people would have had to know the story of Jesus. I think if this movie came out today, no one would get it. But anyway, so this is Brian. He's around a bunch of people, and they're they're criticizing the Romans. And I want to play this because I feel like this is the same as a group of college kids complaining about America and the West and Western civilization today, even though they bask in the glory of it every single day. Here it is. They let us wipe the bastards. They take everything we had, and not just from us, from our fathers, and from our fathers' fathers. And from our fathers' fathers' fathers. Yeah. And from our fathers' 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 fathers. Yeah, all right, Stan, don't labor the point. And what have they ever given us in return? The aqueduct? What? The aqueduct. Oh, yeah, yeah, they did give us that. Uh, that's true, yeah. And the sanitation. Oh, yeah, the sanitation, Reg. Remember what the city used to be like? Yeah, all right, I'll grant you, the aqueduct, the sanitation, the two things the Romans have done. And the roads. Well, yeah, obviously yeah. the roads. I mean, the roads go without sand, don't they? But apart from the sanitation, the aqueduct, and the roads... Irrigation. Medicine. Education. Yeah, yeah, yeah all right, fair enough. And the wine. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, yeah, that's something we've really missed, Reg, if the Romans left. <laughs> Public baths. And it's safe to walk in the streets at night now, Reg. Yeah, they certainly know how to keep order. Let's face it, the only ones who could in a place like this. <laughs> <laughs> All right, but apart from the sanitation, the medicine, education, wine, public order, irrigation, roads, a fresh water system and public health, what have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> Brought peace? Oh, peace! Shut up! <laughs> I think that's exact. It's true today, people today. What has Western civilization given us, really? Uh, uh, sure, freedom of speech and the press and civil rights and women's rights and choice and free markets and the rule of law. and Okay, fine. Every single thing that we bask in every single day and don't even realize it. But sure, other than that, why does the left hate? Why do some on the left hate Western civilization? I want to steal an analysis from Dennis Prager. One word, standards. Certain people are predisposed to hate standards. The left hates the West because of standards, moral standards, artistic standards, and cultural standards. And the West is built on all three of those. And people hate standards because where there are standards, there is judgment. And people hate to be judged. That's why our culture has perverted the Bible by saying, you know, who are you to judge? You're the, oh, who are you to judge? All right. Well, that means that you shouldn't judge someone based on you as the standard. You should judge yourself based on God and Jesus as the standard and realize where you fall short. Today, who are you to judge means game on. Right? You can do any and anyone can do any evil, rotten, disgusting, debasing, dangerous, and perverted thing. And you can't say anything about it because, oh, who are you to judge? Therefore, everything has to be right. Do you see the, uh, <clears throat> uh, someone posted, I think I saw this on the blaze. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, some mom was watching RuPaul's drag race with her, like, I don't know, eight-year-old son. And the boy said that he wanted to wear a dress and makeup. So the mom did and posted all these pictures of her little boy in drag and was super proud of it. And what the heck is wrong with you? Oh, who are you to judge? Well, listen, when you have no standards, then yeah, I, I guess I'm no one. But by every basic decent standard of Western humanity, you shouldn't dress your son up in makeup and women's clothing. What is wrong with you? On my local show the other day, just yesterday, we talked about architecture. We don't have time to do that today, uh, but modern architecture versus classics. Michelangelo is no better than the modern art garbage you see today. Rembrandt, no better than your average graffiti artist. Selena Gomez, new song, no better than Beethoven. Every African poet's better than Shakespeare because he's a white man. This is why the left hated when Reagan called the Soviet Union the evil empire. Because that would mean we are morally superior to everyone else and that's unacceptable. This is why the left defends Islam because Muslims hate the West and the enemy of my enemy is my friend. This is why the left hates Israel because they're Western. This is why they support the Palestinians because they're anti-Western. Enemy, enemy, my friend. Standards. People who hate standards, moral, artistic, and cultural tend to find everything wrong with the West. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. 
Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater is on. Slater Crusaders, thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. A couple more things I want to say about culture, if you don't mind. We've been talking about Trump's speech in Poland because uh, it, it, it highlighted so much that's wrong with this country. Not his speech. His speech did a great job. It was the reaction to the speech. And what's wrong with our modern society that anything that he said would be deemed controversial. I was going to say what he said should be celebrated, but it really shouldn't even be celebrated. It should just be self-evident. It should be should be nothing. Uh, but I feel like because it's being decried, we have to then celebrate it. And then it's it's worth celebrating because it's not self-evident. And it really, maybe I take it back. Maybe it shouldn't be self-evident because it is so unique in world history and in human history. Anyway, James Taranto, uh, Taranto has the best line about all this that I've read so far. You've heard the term dog whistle before, right? So if something's a dog whistle, Trump's speech, for instance, when he said Western civilization 10 times, you know what he really meant. Hmm? Hmm? You know. That was a dog whistle. So sure, he said Western civilization, but that what he really said... Uh, let's just say it was a wink and a nod to the clan. I mean, Chris Matthews hears dog whistles all the time. He did when, when Obama was in office. He said Chicago is a dog whistle when someone says Chicago. That's a racist buzzword. Lawrence O'Donnell said that uh, the word golf is a dog whistle. When you say golf related to Barack Obama, it was a golf, a, a dog whistle. Anyway, so James Taranto, he said, the thing that we as conservatives adore about these dog whistle kerfuffles is that the people who react to the whistle always assume that it's intended for somebody else. But the whole point of the metaphor is that if you can hear the whistle, you're the dog. So if you listen to Trump's speech and you hear white nationalists clan if you hear racist code words, you're the racist, right? If you can hear the dog whistle, you're the dog. If you hear the racist code words, you're the racist. No one else hears the dog whistle, only the dog and only the racist. I don't think we ended up playing it on this show, but there's a clip of Peter Thiel from his book, 1996. What's it called? The myth of diversity, maybe. And he gave a, a speech about it on C-SPAN. It's so good. And in there, he talks about how, um, People who look for racism everywhere will find it. But that's true for everything. If you look for baseball everywhere, you'll find it. It's, if you look for anything everywhere, you'll find it. It's, but that doesn't mean it's really there. But this is why black studies professors always find nooses everywhere. There was some college somewhere a week or so ago that they had a big investigation because someone found a like plastic... Uh, like saran wrap kind of and it was all bundled up and the end had a knot tied in it like a, like a hoop and they called it 
uh, a noose. Now, it would be a, a noose for hamsters because it was just a little, but that's a noose. Right, so if you're looking for, well, you know, of course, being used to hang black people, it harkens back to Marvel. So if you're looking for racism everywhere, then yes, a piece of garbage on the ground is racist. Um, the other day at Seattle, Seattle, I think Seattle, the um, courthouse is so being overrun by homeless people and they're defecating all over the sidewalk that the people who run the courthouse decided that they were going to spray it down with power washers. And a city council member said, no, you can't do that because that's racist because that is imagery and symbolic of the hoses that were being used against black protesters during the civil rights movement. So you can't use power washers to clean off fecal matter off the sidewalk because that's racist, right? So if you want to find racism everywhere you can find it everywhere and if you hear it everywhere if you hear dog whistles everywhere (laughs) sorry that means you're the racist the problem with this though if you're looking for racism everywhere you'll find it but then you'll also find racists everywhere and then you'll make entire college majors about it but anyway i digress um This is a self-evident truth here that that Trump said. He said, America will never forget. The nations of Europe will never forget. We are the fastest and greatest community. There's nothing like our community of nations. We write symphonies. We pursue innovation. We celebrate our ancient heroes. Sounds fine, right? So someone at Huffington Post, excuse me, uh, Washington Post said, "We we write symphonies. What on earth does that have to do with anything? Mocking Trump's. Uh, line there. So again, that's a self-evident truth you would think, but I'll bite. Uh, What does it have to do with anything? Okay. Uh, Symphonies are important because the range of Western achievement is not just in government or in economics, but the full range of Western achievement in Western uh, civilization is, is government, economics, also science and art. And art is paintings and cathedrals, architecture, and symphonies. So he's just expressing the range of Western achievement. That's what that has to do with everything. Washington Post, in that one line, taken in context with everything else Trump said, all the other dog whistles. Oh, what I heard was the loudest of dog whistles. Uh, A familiar boast. A familiar boast that swells the chests of white nationalists everywhere. A familiar boast. Listen, I've, I've never been to a Klan rally, but are they talking about Beethoven? A lot. They're talking. They talk about how we write symphonies. That's one of the Klan's main points about white supremacy. It's weird. Um, all right, last quote from Washington Post. Those symphonies, Trump says, quote, we write, would be real lame without the influence of the Middle East and Muslims. According to Salim al-Hassani, editor of 1001 Inventions, which chronicles the enduring legacy of Muslim civilization, he told CNN years ago that the lute, musical scales, and the ancestor of the violin are all part of that Muslim legacy. Okay. So are you saying there'd be no Beethoven or Brahms or Tchaikovsky without Muslims? Or in the words of the Washington Post writer, 
uh, there's, let's say they did exist, their symphonies would be real lame. <laughs> That's what he said. He said they'd be real lame. Why, right, right. Thank you, Middle East. Who was I talking to the other day? Oh, yeah, one na- uh, Phil Hotzenbiller, One Nation without, with Lawlessness. And he was talking about that the, there's a moment in history when the, during jihad, uh, crusadish era, when the Middle Eastern, Middle East was Christian and the Muslims took it over, right? So it's weird though because we assume, well, yeah, the Middle East, that's where the Muslims are, of course, and that's where the Muslims have always been. No, no, it, it, it's, it's how history has turned out, but that didn't mean that it needed to be the case that today Middle Easterners are uh, mostly Muslim. Isn't that interesting? But anyway, these Middle Eastern Muslim countries, since the Muslims have controlled them, have contributed nothing scientifically, artistically, or economically to the world in the last, I don't know, a thousand years. They do have oil. They have oil, which of course requires foreigners to discover and get out of the ground for them. But pretty think it's fair to say that uh, these Middle Eastern countries have contributed next to nothing in the last thousand years. But according to this person, our world today would be quote real lame without their contribution. In the words of Mark Stein, we'd be living in a loot free world. There'd be no loots, no loots at all. Oh my gosh. Could you imagine? Could you imagine living in the- seriously though today? If there were no loots, what would you do? I know it'd be real lame. I'll end here. This is the former prime minister of Malaysia, which is a Muslim country. He was the prime minister from 1981 to 2003. I think the longest serving prime minister. Uh, He was at an economic gathering of Muslim nations. And he said to other Muslims, we hire other people to do everything for us. The whole Muslim world is 1.5 billion people. And it's a huge consumer society procuring all of our needs from outside our community, including our defense and security. We produce practically nothing on our own. We can do almost nothing for ourselves. We can't. We cannot even manage our wealth. So this is not me, white Westerner, saying this. This is the Prime Minister of Malaysia, longest-running Prime Minister of Malaysia uh, in their history. We produce practically nothing on our own. Not Malaysia. Speaking of the entire Muslim world of 1.5 billion people, we produce nothing on our own. We can do almost nothing for ourselves. But this guy at the Washington Post wants to lecture us that symphonies wouldn't be possible if it weren't for Muslims thousands of years ago. The loot. Why did no one stand up when the prime minister said that and say, oh, Mr. Prime Minister, the loot. Don't forget about the loot. <laughs> I tell you, this is getting so bad that I don't, I, 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 this, if we keep going down this road, one day we're going to have a president who says that NASA wouldn't exist and that we wouldn't have been able to travel to the, to the moon if it weren't for Muslim nations and their contributions to science and math. And I just tell you, if we keep going down this path and that, Oh wait. Oh, we, we, we did have a president who said that. Oh, the last president, Barack Obama said that. That's right. I forgot. This is why it's nice to have a president who at least recognizes Western civilization and celebrates it because the obvious isn't too obvious anymore, apparently. 
1-888-933-93. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. This is Mike Slater. Uh, we got a few minutes here. Let me make this point quick. So this is uh, Linda Sarsour. This may be a good conclusion for the hour, talking about Western civilization to talk about the alternative. Uh, you've heard of this person, Linda Sarsour. I don't want to give her too much credit because that's what she wants. So a couple weeks ago, she called for a jihad against Trump. And people said she's calling for violence against Trump. And she said, oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm reclaiming the word jihad to mean an internal struggle for personal betterment. It was you Western racist and Islamophobes who changed the meaning of the word jihad from personal growth to violent terrorism. So I'm just reclaiming it for what it really means. So when I say I'm, I want a jihad against Trump, I really mean that we need to improve our lives and blah, 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 blah. Just, uh, just deceit. We obviously don't have time to go into a full study of the Quran, but uh, it's about killing infidels. You, people of the West. The Quran says, slay them wherever you find them. So any internal jihad is for the purpose of external violent jihad. This is insane we're even having this conversation. Does this make sense? So, so any internal improvement to your life is for the purpose of external jihad but the point is that progressives and democrats are coming to sarsour's defense because they're inclined to their their ideology says they must remember last week or two weeks ago we played a clip of dave rubin an interview that he did with larry elder so larry elder is a, a black conservative dave rubin a Former progressive who's now says he's a liberal, but he's a good guy, good show. It's on YouTube and interviews a lot of conservatives. So I like him a lot. And he asked Larry Elder about racism and Larry Elder said, give me one example of it. And Dave Rubin said, oh, the black or white cops shooting black men. And Larry Elder just destroyed the entire narrative. Just up top, bottom, done, gone. He had nothing. Dave Rubin had nothing to respond with other than, well, I'm a liberal so I'm supposed to support the other. But you make a very good case, obviously. So he was torn. He's like, oh, you know, you make a good case, but I'm supposed to support the other. What does that mean? As a liberal, he's supposed to support the other. He's supposed to support, to knee-jerk, protect the other, in this case, Muslims and Linda Sarsour, against the majority. Who's the majority? White Christian oppressors. So progressives are inclined to believe her, to support her, to defend her over the values, the American values and our Christian values and our Western values. Isn't that amazing? She is considered, because she's a Muslim, she's the other. Liberals are supposed to defend and protect the other. Even if what the other stands for is contrary to everything that you stand for and everything this country stands for. This is what happens when you put tolerance as a priority above truth. Even above common sense, but above truth. When you put, put uh, tolerance 
of truth, then you get people defending this lady and jihad. Oh, no, it's just a personal betterment. That's all that is. Mm. I don't think that's how that works. one 93 Please check out our Facebook page. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. I wrote a book. I wrote an ebook. Uh, you can uh, pre-order it now. It comes out on Monday, so it comes out in two days. And the audiobook should be up by Monday. And we should have a paperback up in a couple days as well. That could be Monday too. So it could, could all be available on Monday, but you can pre-order the ebook right now. I would love it if you do that. It's about how to win an argument. I guess I should tell you what the book is, right? It's called How to Win an Argument. And that's what it's about, how to win an argument. I think it'll help you. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. You can check it out there. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network. Later in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater's America's the greatest country in the world. Happy Saturday. Thanks for being here. So, talking about culture, and this all stems from Trump's speech in Poland from, I guess, a week and a half ago, where he's talking about Western civilization and a bunch of progressives attacked him for that. And I said, oh, geez, I guess. We need to talk about Western civilization and, and talk about culture. Remember last week we talked all about uh, Thomas Sowell's book, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Just please buy it. I'm 20% through. It's awesome. I got to finish it before I can give it the required reading, but it is well on its way to being required reading for the Mike Slater Show. It is fantastic. Black Rednecks and White Liberals by the great Thomas Sowell. Anyway, I want to talk about uh, another aspect uh, of culture. Progressives and conservatives are different. I'm not sure if you knew that. I mean, those were all human, right? And we have a lot in common too, but there are some big differences. It's a lot more than just you know, this person supports higher taxes and this person supports lower taxes. That's the surface. That's, that's the result of our differences. But there are underlying personality differences and, and moral foundations to use Jonathan Haidt's language, uh, that lead people to want either higher or lower taxes. So there's a study done a few years back on the personality profiles of conservatives and liberals. And I want to quote from that. In general, they they said, liberals are more open-minded. Now, hold on, hold on, hold on. They're saying open-minded about a specific thing, which we'll get to. Because I know you're thinking, hold on, I've seen... College campuses, there's nothing open-minded about the liberals on that, those campuses. Um, that's not what they're talking about. Uh, we'll get to it in a second. But liberals are more open-minded, creative, curious, and novelty-seeking, whereas conservatives are more orderly, conventional, and better organized. So this author uh, of an uh, article I read about this looked at country music as an example. Do you listen to country music? My wife and I, we were driving somewhere the other day and Rodney Atkins watching you came on the radio. I know you've heard this song. It's about a kid and his dad uh, driving and someone cuts him off 
So the dad slams on the brakes and the kid's chicken nuggets go flying and the, the little kid lets out a four-letter word. And dad says, what? Where did you learn that? And then it breaks into the chorus and the kid says, I've been watching you, dad. Ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you. We got cowboy boots and camo pants. They were just alike, hey, ain't we, dad? I want to do everything you do. So I've been watching you. So then the dad prays to be a better father. And the next night, his son, uh, when, when dad's putting him to bed, the little kid gets out of bed and gets on his knees and prays. And dad says, well, where'd you learn to do that? And the kid says, well, I've been watching you. Dad, ain't that cool? I'm your buckaroo. I want to be like you. And he goes on. Cool song. So we have a nine-month-old son, and that song, I've heard it a million times, but it's extra sentimental. But we were driving, and I said to my wife, gosh, I can't believe that that song about praying is on the radio. In our culture today, where there are more atheists than ever before, and even if it's a small number, there's just the boldness to attack God and Christianity and prayer. Uh, that's certainly higher than everywhere. And this song unashamedly celebrates prayer. And that's good, but it's odd. And that's not good <laughs> that it's still odd. But my, my first question, I got two questions too. Um, or number one, why does country music maintain this traditional character? How does it? And the answer to that is because country music is centered in Nashville, Tennessee. If country music moved its headquarters to LA, then it would change the music. But right now, all the artists live in Nashville. All the record companies are in Nashville. So the artists and the record companies, they, they, um, if they don't grow up in Nashville, then they, they bathe in this culture every single day. So it just makes sense. For example, did you see, I don't want to get out. This is a whole sidetrack here, but a bunch of preachers, evangelical preachers went to the white house, the Oval office. And there was this picture that went around of, uh, these people praying and laying hands on the president and Aaron Burnett on CNN, something like, look at this picture of the president and people praying on the president. What's going on here? It's, it's a little strange. We'll, we'll explain what this is coming up or something like that. It's like, huh? You don't know what that is? It's cultural. Of course she doesn't know what it is. People in Nashville do. But the bigger question is, why do conservatives like country music? For the most part, of course, these are broad brushes. Let me quote from this writer. He says, country music comes again and again to the marvel of advancing through life's stations and finds delight in experiencing traditional familial and social relationships from both sides. Meaning, once I was a girl with a mother, now I'm a mother with a girl. My parents took care of me. Now I'm going to take care of them. I was once a teenage boy threatened by a girl's gun-loving father. Now I'm a gun-loving father threatening my girl's teenage boyfriend, etc. And, and country music is full of assurances. This is, I think, the key part. Country music is full of assurances that the pleasures of simple, rooted, small-town lives of faith are deeper and more abiding than any alternative. So let's bring this back around. Progressives are, personality-wise, generally 
more open-minded to new experiences. That's what that is. It's not open-minded to new ideas and perspectives. It's to new experiences, like visiting other countries, trying new foods, trying new drugs, like recreational drugs, um, bucking conventional norms, stuff like that, right? Conservatives are not. Conservatives are more closed to new experiences. We like the natural progression of things, right? From son to father to grandpa, right? That's a, um, we like order. We like predictability. Think of, uh, and I don't know where you're listening right now, but if you live in a country area or if you have a, a very conservative grandpa, like an old, I'm thinking an old country, good old country boy grandpa. And if you went to him and you said, grandpa, great news. I was listening to Mike Slater on the radio and he said that he is going to pay an all expense paid trip for you to go to Paris. Come on, pop. You're going to Paris. We're going to fly you there. You're going to stay in nice hotels. You're going to eat great French food and you're going to stay for a week. Come on, let's go. It's entirely free. I'm almost confident your grandpa would say, mm, no, thanks. I don't want to. What? I'd rather just stay right here. This is fine. I got to do some stuff in the backyard anyway. I don't have time to go to Paris. <laughs> right? Conservative. And, you know, if you're more progressive, then you'd be like, I'm going to Paris. And if you're more conservative, you're like, man, I don't. So why do conservatives like country music generally? Because it reinforces to people who are inclined that way. I am. Uh, it, it reinforces to people who don't like new experiences and um, aren't inclined to just fly off to Paris, even if we could. It reinforces to us that life's most powerful and meaningful moments are those which you already experience. This is why country music resonates. You don't have to go to Paris. You have the old dirt road. You don't have to go to LA and try and date a supermodel. The girl from your kindergarten class who you used to hate, but now you realize she's kind of cute. That's your soulmate. You don't need the fast paced big city life. It's the one stoplight town that has the real meaning of life. And by the way, there's nothing in Europe that can beat the spot by the river where you had your first kiss. That's country music. It reinforces those truths. You know the word bulwark? Bulwark's one of my favorite words. It's a, a B-U-L-W-A-R-K, bulwark. It's a defensive wall, a rampart, a fortification, a stockade, a barricade. And in a quickly changing world and culture, country music is a bulwark. It's a blockade against cultural change. Country music is a bomb shelter where you can run to in a culture that's out of control. And if you feel like you're, and you and we are losing track of what's really important in life and things are just going totally loco, listen to Small Town USA by Justin Moore. Listen to This Ain't Nothing by Craig Morgan. Listen to Just Fishing by Trace Atkins. You want to go a little old school? Go to the king, George Strait. I saw God today. That is traditional American values, small town music. Small town, excuse me, values. Now, my wife and I, we just saw the movie Troy the other day about the, uh, the Iliad. If traditional American values are the city of Troy, 
Country music is the impenetrable wall around our city, protecting us from progressive postmodern Marxist values. These walls can't be torn down, but the Trojan horse is going to try to trick us by letting us in, by letting us, by, by tricking us into letting it in. So be aware of those Trojan horses. But also listen to some country music. It's good for you. 1-888-900-3393. Do I have time to share this story? Let me take a break. I want to come back. I'll show you a nice story of this in action. You'll like it, I promise. Mike Slater Show. The Blade. You'll like, you want to know why you like it? You like it because you have those same values I was just talking about. You can't not like this story. I, that's my guarantee. This isn't even, a, I'm not even trying to overtease this. I'm going to share this story. There's no way you won't like it. Because it touches on the values that country music talks about. So if you like those songs I just listed, or, or you generally like country music because it just makes you feel good, you're going to like this story too. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on The Blaze Radio Network. You're listening to Mike Slater. Hello, Slater Crusaders. Thanks for being here. So I, I wrote a book. It comes out on Monday, two days. You can pre-order it now on Amazon. Uh, it's just a couple bucks. It's called How to Change Someone's Mind. And it's about how to change someone's mind. Pretty simple. It's short. I meant to, I wrote it to be read in an hour. Because I want it to be used as a guidebook. Something that you can always resource and go back to. And think of... Think of the person in your life, family member, coworker, friend, spouse, who, let's just focus on politics for one second, who you just can't get them to see the light. For the life of you, tried everything. I think this book will help because I think there's some insight in here that um, you've never tried before. And I've tried it all, Slater. Give this a whirl. It's very different. It's not how to win an argument. It's very easy to win an argument. Ben Shapiro, who I like very much. I really like Ben Shapiro. Conservative guy. He wrote a book a couple years ago called 11 Rules for Destroying the Left or some, or Destroying a Leftist. How to Win an Argument or something like that. It's fine, but that's not what this is. This is how to change someone's mind. So pre-order right now on Amazon. You can search for Mike Slater. You can go to our Facebook page, search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. And uh, you can see it there, how to change someone's mind. The ebook's available. The ebook will come out Monday morning. And we've got the paperback coming up in a couple days. And the audiobook should be available on Monday as well. So we've got the whole, the whole gambit there for you. All right, here's the story I promised you would like. I'll give you an example of this, this country music stuff and these country music values in real life. So a couple days ago, McGregor, Texas, population 4,987. I love towns where you drive through them and there's a welcome sign and it has the exact number of people. <laughs> so if someone's born, they have to add a number to the sign when you're, uh, there's nothing nearby. Waco's 20 miles away. That's the big city. That's the town that Chip and Joanna flip houses at for $50,000. <laughs> so I live in San Diego. 
the average house in San Diego, I don't know, what is it? It's like coming up on 700,000 for five, 1,600 square feet, maybe. Insane. Insane. My wife and I, we were looking for houses and we went to one, wasn't even near the beach. It was like a mile away from the beach. Total dump. Total dump. 1,300 square feet. $800,000. We laughed and laughed. The poor uh, real estate agent told us that. We laughed and laughed and said, what are you talking about? So then we went home and we watched a, uh, a fixer-upper. And it, they're like, like 60 grand for a house. And I love that people are, uh, their, their budget, they're, they got a budget of 60 grand and the home is uh, 55,000. And they're like, oh, this is great. We have an extra $5,000. We can put on a second, a second floor. <laughs> a second floor. San Diego with $5,000, you could build 4% of a kitchen. In Waco, you could build an entire second floor. Anyway, I digress. McGregor, Texas. All right, you know the place. People, you know the kind of place if you've never been there. People at the local coffee shop. It's the coffee shop cafe. And a man walks in with his wife. Um, just the two of them. No big deal. But it caused uh, a resident of the town, Debbie and, and Jordan, and their three kids, nine, six, and one, to turn their heads. They'd just been swimming all day. Debbie was tired, didn't want to cook, so they went out to eat at the diner. And uh, they look up, and in, in walks the former president of the United States, George W. Bush. Just walked in with his wife, sat down, order. <laughs> the parents convinced the kids to go over and shake the hand of the former president. Mom says it was one of those moments where you're going, oh my gosh, that, that was the president. But at the same time, it was like everyone's grandpa walked in because it was so unexpected in such a casual environment. In some ways, we look back and we go, wow, that was a president. And trying to explain the significance to the kids, he's a president, yet the meaning seems so unpresidential. He was so friendly, so normal. Debbie says that Bush took time to visit every person in the in the diner before leaving and the person sitting next to them and the, the table next to them uh she overheard them talking she says there was another young couple that he turned to and the man was in the army the guy told the president it was an honor to serve you and george president bush said thank you for your service but you did not serve me you served your country what you see is what you get with Bush, Debbie said, in a down-home country cafe saying, saying hi to everyone. The graciousness was so classy. So if you agree with what I was saying in the last segment about country values, conservative values, country music, you can't not like that story because it's everything we're talking about. All-expense-paid uh, all trip to Paris. Mm. President of the United States. He can go anywhere in the world. He can do whatever he wants. We'll go to this cafe right here. Get a bite to eat. How cool is it that we live in a country where we don't have kings? Where the president isn't ordained by God or, or, or arrogant enough to believe that they're in some sort of special communion with God to rule over the people. Now they're just people. And then, and then they're the president one day, and then the next day there's some guy at a diner, and that's absolutely how it should be. And extra, extra, credit, extra credit given to George W. Bush because he's more of that kind of guy 
than, uh, than maybe some other foreign presidents. But there's something perfectly Americana about that entire scene. Family, three young kids, day of swimming, going to the diner for dinner. President walks in. Kids walk over, say hi. Over here, the former president talking to a veteran, of course, who was also at the diner. I'm sure there's a veteran at the diner at all times. I mean, that, that is absolutely a country song waiting to be written. <laughs> it's perfect. one 900 Coming up next, I want to get off the, uh, the beaten path here for a second and talk about stage fright. Because I don't know how relevant this is going to be for everyone listening now. But I mean, it is everyone's biggest fear, right? It's the number one fear in the, in the country is public speaking. So I want to talk about that and, and stage fright specifically, what it is, like, obviously you know what it is, but like, what is it? Like what's going on in your body, in your brain when you feel it and how to get over it? Because there's someone listening right now who's about to give a big presentation at work and they're scared out of their mind. What I'm going to tell you is going to help you. I promise. We'll do that next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. And to pre-order the book, just go to our Facebook page. Search for The Mike Slater Show on Facebook. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. talk about stage fright here because on my local show every monday at one o'clock we have a biographer segment and we have a different author on and uh, we ask them what are three characteristics of this person that defined them hopefully good things that we can apply to our life and last monday we talked about elvis someone wrote a book called living elvis a lonely life i believe that's what it's called really really fascinating conversation with this guy and ended up talking about how elvis has stage fright so it got me, uh, well, just kind of inspired us to, to talk about stage fright and what it is. Do you get, do you get stage fright? I think everyone does. So how do we overcome it? Do not imagine everyone in their underwear. That's stupid. That doesn't, I don't even get what that, what that's about. I think the first step to overcoming stage fright is understanding what it really is. It is fight or flight. That's what it is. When we encounter this moment of having to give a speech in our brains, it is truly no different than if you were an antelope surrounded by lions. Like, like your brain, a very small part of your brain, but a powerful part is triggering the fight or flight response. It's the hypothalamus part of your brain. It's the size of an almond that, triggers the pituitary gland to secrete a, a hormone, ACTH. That makes your adrenal glands shoot adrenaline into your blood. That causes different reactions in different parts of your body. So what happens when you get scared, when you get stage fright? What physical reaction happens to you? Your legs might start shaking. You're a little weak in the knees, right? Why? Those are your muscles preparing to run fight or flight. Maybe you sweat when you're about to give a big speech or presentation. Your sweating is your body preparing to run. Your heart beats faster. Why? That's your body preparing to run. 
Me, I get dry, uh, dry mouth. My throat gets dry. That's because the adrenaline shuts your digestive system down because your body's sending energy and blood to the parts of your body that are needed to run. And your digestive system is not needed at that moment. That's why you get dry mouth and butterflies in your stomach. Your pupils dilate, right? Maybe it's, it's harder for you to read your notes. That's because your pupils dilate. Um, makes it harder to read your notes, but it does that so you can see longer range, which makes it better for you to see the threats that are in front of you, and it makes it easier for you to run. <laughs> so think about that. Everything you feel when you get nervous is your body preparing to run. So... How do we overcome this? First, know that you're feeling this, but know that it's not real. I mean, it is real. You are feeling it, but it's not based on anything real. It is your body subconsciously reacting to a perceived threat that is not there. This is the most important thing of what I'm saying about stage fright. We think, and I've always thought, that I'm giving a big speech and I have all these fears about it. And I think, oh my gosh, what if I blow it? What if they hate me? What if it's terrible? What if I forget what I'm going to say? What if this happens? What if that happens? And because I'm thinking these things, then I get nervous and my body, my my knees get weak and throat gets dry, blah, blah, blah. No, that's backwards. It's the other way around. First, the hypothalamus part of your brain subconsciously without you thinking about anything, the very first thing that is triggered, that causes your knees to be weak, your throat to get dry, your heart to race, right? Your hypothalamus prepares you to run, but there's really nothing, there's no lions in front of you. There's no reason to, you're not really in danger. So the rest of your brain then comes up with reasons to run, right? It comes up with excuses to run because your body's ready to run, but there's no reason to run. So then your other part of your brain just starts thinking of reasons. Oh, they're going to hate you. Uh, you're going to forget what you're going to say. It's going to hurt your reputation. You're going to fail. You're ugly, blah, 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 right? But the hypothalamus happens first. So you have to not think positive thoughts. You have to override your hypothalamus. You have to override the part of your brain that's telling the rest of your body to run. So what do you do? Your muscles contract because you're getting ready to run. So stretch. Your heart's, uh, your, your uh, breath is uh, faster. Your heart's beating faster because you're getting ready to run. So breathe deeply. So your brain wants to release more flight hormones. You got to trick your brain into releasing more relaxing hormones. It's the only way to do it. You stop, if you stop the root cause of the bad thoughts, if you stop the flight response, then you won't make the bad thoughts because the bad thoughts come second. The flight response comes first. Override the flight response and you won't have the bad thoughts. For me, the thing that helps with stage fright is knowing that everyone feels this way. Everyone. I want to quote Ringo Starr uh, of the Beatles, of course. He said, every night, I would just hope that tonight's the night when I'm going to feel like Frank Sinatra. <laughs> and I hope, oh, you're just going to stroll on stage, but I haven't made it yet. I always run. So Ringo Starr runs on stage. He says, that's why I always run on stage. I, I would love to coolly stroll on stage, but I can't. Right? His body, isn't that amazing? His body told him to run. He was so nervous, fight or flight. And the only way he could overcome it was to run on stage. So the Beatles got nervous every single night. 
Second approach that helps for me. First thing is knowing everyone feels this way. Second is to judo it. So judo is all about using the other person's momentum against them. Right? So if someone runs at you, you don't punch them in the face. You flip them over your shoulder. Use their momentum to flip them over your shoulder, whatever. Right? That's judo. Uh, that's what Elvis did. He said, I've never gotten over what they call stage fright. I go through it every show. I never get completely comfortable with it. And I don't let people around me get comfortable with it either. In that, I remind them that it's a new crowd out there. It's a new audience and they haven't seen us before. So it's got to be like the first time we ever went on. So he judos the stage fright. And you got to do the same if you have it. Use it to your advantage. Like Ringo, right? His body's ready to run. He couldn't stop that reaction. So instead of running away, at least he ran on stage. (laughs) And as Elvis did, he used that stage fright the nervousness to get fired up and to get everyone else fired up around him too. The nerves mean you care. That's good. Embrace that. There's a great line out of uh, the war of art, which is required reading uh, by Stephen Pressfield. He said, Henry Fonda was still throwing up before every stage performance, even when he was 75. In other words, fear doesn't go away. The warrior and the artist live by the same code of necessity, which dictates that the battle must be fought anew every day. Fear doesn't go away. What do you do with it is what matters. Ringo Starr ran on stage. That's what we got to do. I want to give you an example uh, just to prove again that the brain, the brain works first. The subconscious part of the brain works first. Then you start fearing things. So what happens if there's someone who doesn't have that part of the brain? What if, what if there's someone out there where the part of the brain that makes your body go into fear mode like that, fight or flight mode, what if that part of the brain doesn't, doesn't work properly? I'll tell you, we're, that person's probably capable of doing some pretty incredible things. I'll tell you a story about one of those people next. one 888 Mike Slater. So the Blaze Radio Network, spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. I want to prove that stage fright comes from the subconscious first, right? Your brain does it first without you realizing it. Then you start to rationalize your fear, right? You create fears in order to match how your body feels. Does that make sense? The, f- the fear doesn't come first. The feelings of fear comes first. Then you supply the fears. So if we could find a way to not feel fear in the first place, then you wouldn't start making up all these what ifs, what ifs, what ifs, worst case scenarios, which then you go spiral down. Now, some fear is good, right? But you know, fear tells you that you're scared of heights because genuinely you're not supposed to be careful, right? Like, that your, your brain's telling you to not fall because that would, like, so, so, so some fear is good. But what if you could turn that off? One of the greatest, truly, I, I would argue, one of the greatest human physical achievements happened a couple weeks ago. In all of human history, one of the greatest physical human achievements, and very few people know about it. I don't want to say very few, but 
everyone should. Someone climbed El Capitan. El Capitan in Yosemite is a flat rock face, 3,000 feet. So that's uh, a 300-story building. So imagine three Empire State Buildings, 3,000 feet. Someone climbed it, no ropes. Free climb, no ropes, no equipment, nothing. Just his hands and his feet. Impossible. When I say impossible, I mean no one's ever thought about doing it. This isn't like, oh, a bunch of people have tried and, and maybe one day someone will. Nope, this was no one even considered the concept. It's impossible. And someone did it. So I don't know if you've ever gone rock climbing. It's awesome. You just do the indoor rock climbing if you want to go outside. Uh, it's so much fun. I love it. There are easy holds. They're called holds. And easy holds, I mean, they, they can be like a handle and something just very simple. And there's difficult holds. And a difficult hold is like holding this little tiny, little itty bitty piece of rock with your two fingertips. Just kind of just getting. And then there are impossible holds, which is El Capitan, which is, I'm telling you, it's a flat sheet of rock. And sometimes there's not even like a little ledge to hold onto. It's just an indentation in the rock. And you have to, it's called smearing. You have to smear your shoes into the rock indentation and hoping that it, it sticks. And you just got to grab these little, just with a finger, you got to grab this little tiny, and you got to do that for a 300-story building for four hours. And if you have an itch, you die. How is it possible to, how is it physically possible to do that? But how is it mentally possible to do that? How is it mentally possible to not get scared and not lose your focus for one second during those four hours? One of the other greatest climbers in the world, who again has never dreamed of doing this, he said, the pro he said one of the difficult things is if you're at all nervous, there's a downward spiral where you get nervous, you pull harder with your hands, that causes you to lean in closer to the wall of your upper body, and then your feet shoot out, and then you fall and you die. He says it takes incredible confidence to do this. You can't get nervous for a second because then you will die. <laughs> So how is he able to do this? This is a New York Times article. Uh, the guy who did it, his name is Alex uh, Honnold, H-O-N-N-O-L-D, Alex Honnold. He said, friends of Alex joke that when he was a baby, his mother must have stepped on his amygdala, the brain region that controls fear. Last year, MRI testing at the Medical University of South Carolina tilted the scales towards precisely that explanation, an underactive amygdala not a negligent mother, by confirming that Hanold's fear circuitry really does fire with less vigor than most. So the part of his brain that deals with fear, the amygdala, or the hypothalamus, uh, it doesn't fire. It doesn't fire the flight response like it would in someone else. Right, so any one of us, we would look at that, the amygdala would fire, and then we'd start thinking of all the worst things that can happen. Obviously, slip, fall, die. So you'd get scared. It wouldn't work. He's up there, 3,000 feet. I think the craziest part is if you're 3,000, let's say you're 2,995 feet, you got five feet left to go. And if you still make a mistake, you die. And you're actually higher than ever at that point. The whole thing seems impossible. So you got five feet left to go and you still got to keep your focus and your attention. 100%. 
But if you get scared at that moment, if your amygdala fires at that moment, then you're going to start thinking, oh my gosh, I'm so close. I'm going to slip. I'm going to die. I'm going to, I'm going to fall. I'm going to die. And you will. But it's your amygdala that fires. Then you start thinking things. He doesn't have an amygdala, so he never starts thinking these things in the first place. Another friend of his said uh, that Alex has the capacity to compartmentalize fear, to rationalize it. His brain is so powerful that if a thought or feeling is not serving him, he can put it away. Wow, what if we could all do that? What if we were capable of, of having fears or negative thoughts, but we could put them aside? What if our brains that dealt with fear, what if they weren't in control of us, but we were in control of it? Imagine what we'd be capable of. Now, again, there's some fear that's good, but there's some fear that cripples. I'll end on this quote. This is Elizabeth Gilbert. She has a book. It's called Big Magic. She wrote, Dearest Fear, Creativity and I are about to go on a road trip together. I understand you'll be joining us because you always do. You are allowed to have a seat and you're allowed to have a voice, but you are not allowed to have a vote. You are not allowed to touch the road maps or suggest detours. You're not allowed to fiddle with the temperature. Dude, you're not even allowed to touch the radio. But above all else, you are absolutely forbidden to drive. Don't be driven by that part of your brain the size of an acorn. Excuse me, the size of a uh, almond. You're better than that. What you want to do is more important than that. One eight 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 nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook and on the Mike Slater Show uh, on Facebook. We have a link to my new book, which comes out on Monday. It's called How to Change Someone's Mind, and uh, you can pre-order it right now. Comes out Monday morning, the ebook, and I think you'll like it. I think it'll help you change that person's mind who uh, you haven't been able to yet. Search for the Mike Slater Show on Facebook. You can buy it on Amazon. Mike Slater Show. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. And go for Mike Slater in three, two, one. You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio. Only on the Blaze Radio Network. Saturday's America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. Uh, I want to chat a little bit more about culture, if that's okay. I know we've been spending a lot of time on it. We did a lot last week as well. But I really think that once this makes sense, then, well, at least for me, everything I, I see starts to fall in line a, a little bit better. I want to quote here from Ravi Zacharias. Someone sent me this on Twitter the other day and said, Slater, this is exactly what you're talking about. So I had to click and uh, the person was right. So Ravi Zacharias here was talking about a, a sermon. Uh, excuse me. Excuse me. An article that someone wrote in psychology today back in 1981. And this person said, culture is the effort to provide a coherent set of answers to the existential questions that confront all human beings in the passage of their lives. Culture is the effort to provide a coherent set of answers to the existential situations 
that confront all human beings in the passage of their lives. Okay, so Rabbi Zacharias is up there, he's talking, and he, and he quotes that. So he's given a, a speech to some college, and someone goes up to the microphone and says, who told you culture is a search for coherence? Who told you that? Where do you get that idea from? This idea of coherence is a Western idea. Real quick timeout. I should have given a better intro to this. This is all in reaction to President Trump's speech about a week and a half ago in Poland where he talked about Western civilization and the left freaked out. Oh my gosh, how dare you talk about Western civilization, blah, blah, blah. And that's because so many people for generations now have been taught that Western civilization is white Christian and therefore bad, bigoted, Islamophobic, homophobic, etc. So all things Western are bad. So here's Ravi Zacharias talking about how culture is the effort to provide a coherent set of answers. This woman gets up there and says, coherence is a Western idea. <laughs> so let me quote from Ravi. He says, I replied by reminding her that all I had done in this instance was to present a sociologist definition that cult- culture sought coherence. She says, ah, words, just words. So he responded, well, let me ask you this then. Do you want my answer to be coherent? Some laughter rippled through the auditorium. She herself was stymied for a few moments. But that's language, isn't it? She retorted. I asked her if language did not have anything to do with reality. Must words not point to a referent? If you're seeking an answer that must be coherent, but culture itself does not have to be, how can that be? You could sense the turmoil within that person's life. And indeed, later on, I was told that this individual was a rather outspoken person whose lifestyle was radically aberrant uh, from the normal. Her whole struggle for coherence was rooted in her own very physiological dissonance. So let me, let's break this down. Here's a girl, student, gets up and says coherence is a Western idea. So coherence, dictionary definition, it's the quality of being logical and consistent and the quality of forming a unified whole. That's coherence. And she says that that's a Western idea and therefore bad. (laughs) But here's the thing. No postmodernist, no progressive can live up to their own standards. Because while she doesn't believe in coherence, she demands from Ravi Zacharias a coherent answer, right? She asks a question, demands coherence, yet says there's no such thing as coherence. This is the problem too with postmodernists who say there's no such thing as truth, yet they believe that that is true, (laughs) right? They'll say there's no such thing as truth, Oh, other than that, other than that. No, you can't have that both ways. Their entire argument falls on its face instantly. Same thing with this woman. It's revealed straight from the jump. Oh, you don't believe in coherence. Okay, do you want me to respond to you coherently? You don't believe in truth? Okay, is that true? (laughs) Also, did you hear her talk about language? Oh, language, just language. There's two attacks on truth, two two most prevalent that we're seeing today in American society. First, gender. There's no more foundational truth than man and woman. So if we can eliminate the concept of gender, I mean, that's the ultimate truth, or one of the ultimate truths, and um, nothing else can stand once you tear down the concept of man and woman. 
another truth that is being attacked is language. This is as obvious of an example as I could possibly come up with. And it was this week this happened. This is the University of Washington uh, at Tacoma, their writing center. So the, the head of the writing center is telling students that, excuse me, telling students who use proper grammar that they are perpetuating racism through, quote, unjust social structures. Now, I just want to be clear. We have different levels here. So one level, I think the ultimate level is everyone should use proper grammar. Below that is everyone should use proper grammar, but if you don't, you can't force them to because if you force them to, then you're forcing unjust social structures and you're a racist, blah, blah, blah. That's bad. What's worse is an attack on people who do use proper grammar. This is no one should use proper grammar, and if you use it, you're racist. Do you see the difference between those two things? One is, oh, don't criticize people who don't use proper grammar. That's not appropriate. That's racist if you criticize someone who doesn't use proper grammar. Now it's, now you got those people criticizing those who do use proper grammar. Like, <laughs> what? At the writing center, at a university. The university, the, uh, the writing center person says, racism is the normal condition of things. Racism is pervasive. It is in the system, structures, rules, languages, expectation, expectations, and guidelines that make up our classes, school, and society, blah, blah, blah. For example, linguistic and writing research has shown clearly for many decades that there is no inherent standard of English. Language is constantly changing. These two facts make it very difficult to justify placing people in hierarchies or restricting opportunities and privileges because of the way people communicate in particular versions of English. <laughs> particular versions of English. Do you see how stupid this is? This is more than, you know, that person has a Southern accent. This is people who don't use proper grammar. This is amazing. First, the left wants us to be equally poor. Now they want us all to be equally dumb. This means logically, using her logic, I could go to the writing center at a university and write a paper not just inc incorrectly or poorly, but gibberish. And if anyone dare question it, they're being racist. They're imposing on me an unjust social, social structure that says I have to write a certain way. And if, if I don't write that way, this person says that that shouldn't hold me back. That like you shouldn't put people in hierarchies and restrict opportunities based off of someone's ability to communicate properly. <laughs> and if someone does communicate properly, they're being racist. Live in that world and no one can communicate with anyone. Which is why deep down these progressives, they don't want dialogue or debate. They don't want it. So destroying language is the perfect way to make that happen. Destroy the ability to, for people to communicate with each other and then there will be no more communication. That's what this is about. And gender again, an obvious example. I don't wanna get sidetracked, but I saw a video the other day of uh, a man playing on the women's volleyball team at UC Santa Cruz and this guy's trying out for the Olympics for women's volleyball. This is insane. But in a post-truth world, gender doesn't exist either. Gen gender and language don't exist. So anyway, back to coherence. Back to center. Back to culture. 
Culture is the center which holds everything else together. I'm not saying we all need to be drones and clones of each other, but there has to be a center to a society and to a family. Language is a good center. That's important. That's a good thing to have in your center is a, is a common language. Traditional gender roles is a good center. The concept of gender is a good center to have. I can't express enough how everything is downstream of culture. Andrew Breitbart used to say that politics is downstream of culture, and I never quite understood that. But it's becoming more and more clear, and he's 100% right. If you want to change politics, you can't do that until you change culture first. Culture is everything. Everything is downstream of culture. One last thing. Mm, Let me take a break. I'll come back with this. But that's what you're up against. Someone says, oh yeah, culture is the effort to provide a coherent set of values. Up, oh, coherence is a Western ideal and it's racist. Coherence. So what's the answer to coherence? Chaos. That's what they want. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to... Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. I want to uh, share the story here from uh, Bart, the subway in San Francisco. So there's been a string of robberies in the subway there with a big group of teenagers, right? So you got a giant mob, 50 kids, and they run into a subway car or down into a station and they rob a bunch of people, beat them up, beat a couple up, and then uh, run away with whatever they can. It's like flash mob, but less dancing. Uh, it's all on video, but Bart has refused to release the surveillance video of any of these robberies. Why? This is what Bart wrote back. This is the official response. I want to be clear. This is not my analysis or guess of what they're, why they're not releasing it. This is what they said. Quote, to release these videos would create a high level of racially insensitive commentary And in addition, it would create a racial bias in the writers against minorities on the train. Releasing the video would unfairly affect and characterize writers of color, leading to sweeping generalizations in media reports. Isn't that amazing? So they're not going to release the videos because, I mean, everyone knows who these teenagers are, right? The Amish. Stupid Amish. At it again. I hate the Amish. With their horses and buggies and wood stoves and cheese curds going on robbing people in the subway in San Francisco. Unbelievable. Someone's finally got to crack down on these Amish. Oh, it's not. Not the Amish. I'm being told it's not the Amish. 
Sorry, I jumped to conclusions there. So let's look at what this really does. Well, let's look at what not releasing the videos does. So I want to be clear. They're not releasing these videos because they're black teenagers and they don't want to uh, increase racial insensitivity towards black people. Now, so they think they're helping people. They're helping black people by not releasing them. So we've talked before on the show many times, there's no such thing as race. It's all about culture. It's all culture. No one of any race or any skin color is more or less likely to commit a crime because of their skin color. That's absurd. There's nothing about skin color that makes anyone more prone to criminal behavior. But if Bart sends the message, as they are doing, that if you are of a certain skin color and commit crimes, then the footage won't be released. Then people of a certain skin color will be more likely to commit these crimes. Let me say this again. There's nothing about skin color that will make you more or less likely to commit a crime. But if Bart says, hey, if your skin color is black, we're not going to release footage of you committing crimes. If they do that, then people of that skin color will be more likely to commit crimes because they'll know it's less likely they're going to be caught. So in Bart's effort to be racially sensitive, they've actually made it more likely that black teenagers will rob subways because black teenagers know that the videos of them won't be released precisely because they're black. And then people, because we're not idiots, will actually be more wary of certain types of people on the train. Bart has incentivized black teenagers to commit crimes. In the name of protecting them, they've hurt them. Now, white teenagers, let's say white teenagers wanted to do one of these mob crimes, whatever they're calling them. They'll get together and they'll say, well, if we do it, the video of it's going to be released. It's more likely my mom or uncle is going to see me on the news and I'm going to get caught. Black teenagers get together and say, hey, we're going to go rob a bunch of people on the subway. They know it's less likely that they're going to be caught, which means black teenagers will end up committing more crimes because of this. Isn't that amazing? I, I really just want to prove, so they're making it worse. That's my point. Bart, in an effort to help people, uh, black people, uh, is making uh, life worse for black people. And just to prove again that this is not about race. Remember our discussion last week about where Southern colonists came from? Southern colonists came from the rough and tumble areas of Northern England, Scotland, and Ulster County, Ireland. They brought with them, right? These colonists brought with them that culture to the South. Markedly different culture from the people of Haverhill and East Anglia, Southern England. Those people settled in Boston. So these Ulster County folk who then moved to the South, they were white. Northern folk looked at these Southerners and said, they're terrible because they have a, in the words of Thomas Sowell, well, not in the words of Thomas Sowell, in the research of Thomas Sowell, these people, these white Southerners have a aversion to work, proneness to violence, neglect of education, sexual promiscuity, improvidence, so they don't think about the future, drunkenness, lack of entrepreneurship, reckless searches for excitement, 
and lively music and dance. That was the culture of Southern whites. That culture was then taken over by Southern blacks. And then in a great migration from the South to the North among black people uh, has been embraced by black people, particularly ghetto culture throughout the entire country. There's nothing black about this culture. There's nothing black about it at all. But in this particular case, there's two aspects of this culture. And this is my big point. It's not about race. I know every time I talk about this, there's someone who's like, oh, sorry, you're being racist. No, that's my point. It has nothing to do with race. Nothing, 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 nothing. It's entirely culture. It's the opposite. If there is an opposite of race, that is culture. It has zero to do with race. I can't be racist because it has nothing to do with race at all. It is culture. And in this case, there's two aspects of it. Proneness to violence which was a culture of people in the Scottish Badlands, which was a culture of white people in the South, which is now the culture of many ghetto black people across the country. A proneness to violence and improvidence that's lacking foresight. I also throw in there reckless searches for excitement, which is what these mob attacks are, right? These people, these kids are not doing it for money. It's just a risky, high, fun mob thing to do. So Bart, by not releasing these videos because these kids are black, they're making it, this, this behavior more ingrained in the culture of this group of kids. Isn't that amazing? This is another example of what happens when there's no such thing as right and wrong. If the higher priority was on what's right and what's wrong, then they would release these tapes and the people who do this would be punished accordingly. But the higher priority is on social justice and tolerance and other such nonsense, which always, always, always ends up hurting the very people that they say it's trying to help. Every time social justice is put to the forefront of a reason why I'm doing something or the government's doing something, it always ends up hurting the very people that they say they're trying to help. When will we ever stink and learn? 1-888-933-93. You know what I want to talk about next? The great Mark Devine. Do you know him? Tell you about next. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio on The Blaze Radio Network. the next generation of talk radio this is mike slater hello slater crusaders i'll talk about mark divine coming up in the next segment i want to uh chat about this first so i found this parenting blog uh it's it's a a therapist who has it someone sent it to me and they said it's everything we talk about on the show and i've been checking it out and and everything i've read has been been spot on she's a tough love tough love person kind of like uh like a dr laura type And let me just, before I get into a specific thing, I want to share her big sort of mission statement. She says kids need emotionally available parents. And instead, they're getting digitally distracted parents. She says kids need clearly defined limits and guidance. Instead, they're getting indulgent parents who let kids rule the world. She says kids need responsibilities. Instead, they're getting a sense of entitlement. She said kids need balanced nutrition and adequate sleep. And instead, they're getting 
unbalanced nutrition and inadequate sleep. She says kids need movement and outdoors and instead they're getting sedentary indoor lifestyles. She said kids need creative play. Instead, they're getting endless stimulation. She says they need social interaction and opportunities for unstructured times and boredom. Instead, they're getting technological babysitters, instant gratification, and absence of dull moments. So I think that's 100% right. Let me run through it again. I think kids are getting digitally distracted parents. and uh, They're letting uh, parents who let them rule the world. A sense of entitlement. Inadequate sleep. Terrible food. Sedentary indoor lifestyle. Endless stimulation. Technology babysitters. Instant gratification and no dull moments. And that's the one I actually want to talk about here. That's what kids are getting and they need the opposite of all those things. And I think a lot of the problems we're seeing in society today, a lot of problems we're seeing in school today come from this. So that woman wrote a blog post and I've seen a couple other similar analyses of this about the fidget spinners. Have you seen these things? These fidget spinners. I saw one for the first time a couple weeks back and then they just exploded. And I, I got to hold my first one last week. And if you've never seen these things, it's just a little, it's just a thing you spin. It's, Little, it's on ball bearings. And you just, and it goes, it just spins for a while. That's literally, it's nothing. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not doing the old grandpa, oh, these things are the devil's toy. Like, there's nothing inherently wrong with it. It's not it I have a problem with. It's nothing. It's a piece of plastic. It's, it's nothing. The problem is what's underlying it. The, what's, it. the problem is what's creating the need for it. Fidget spinners aren't the problem. They reveal a bigger problem. Now, I'm going to get an email from someone who's like, oh, but for my child, they actually really help. Okay, fine. That's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that every single kid in every single classroom across the country has this thing. The idea is that these spinners are good for kids with ADHD, which every kid has now, and I'll talk about why in a second. But the idea is because kids can't focus because they're, they're ADHD, they can't focus, so we give them these spinners, which help them focus. And I heard that, and I said, what are you talking about? That doesn't make any sense at all. I mean, of course, they help kids focus, but they don't help kids focus on the right thing. <laughs> like, I don't know, the teacher. Maybe it helps them focus on the fidget spinner for 30 seconds, but that's not what they should be focusing on anyway. So they're supposed to be focusing on the teacher. Instead, they're looking outside. So you give them a fidget spinner. Well, now they're not looking outside, but they're still not looking at the teacher or the book or the homework or whatever. The problem is not that kids can't pay attention. It's the, the problem is that kids don't pay attention to what they should be paying attention to. This is so important. It's amazing. And I, I know there's someone who's going to be listening now who's like, no, my child really does have it. Okay, fine. I mean, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the fact that everyone has ADHD. Most kids, they can pay attention. Most kids who are diagnosed with ADHD, I guarantee you they have no problem paying attention for hours and hours and hours to video games. I guarantee you take most kids with ADHD, you put them in front of a video game and they can play all night long. No attention deficit problem there. It's the boring things that they don't want to pay attention to. That is a lack of self-control. It's not ADHD. It's a lack of self-control. Let me quote from a, uh, a high school teacher. If a mind craves physical distraction in order to learn, such craving needs to be crushed, not coddled. Because if coddled, it will only expand, 
Deeply gratified appetites do not remain the same size, and creating toys merely for young men to fidget with, as though the bazillion other things they have to fidget with are not enough, sends a ridiculous message to them about indulgence and accommodation. We live in a world of instant gratification. No one can deny that, and it is a drug. I'm telling you, it's not like a drug. It is a drug. it, It works in our brains very similar to drugs. The more gratification we give, the more or we get, excuse me, the more gratification we get, the more we crave it. And we have rewired our kids' brains with technology, using iPads and video games to distract them. And when we do that nonstop, they're just constantly, constantly, constantly wired, wired, wired. And then we drop them off at school. We make it so they are unable to learn, unable to learn because their brains can't function under low levels of stimulation because they're on crack. Kids expect special effects all the time, nonstop. We know this is true. You know this is true. The other day, my wife and I flicked through the channels and we came across um, the Lone Ranger, the original Lone Ranger. And it was right in the beginning. And, and, and the Lone Ranger is on his horse. And he's, it's the intro. He's riding on the horse. And then the horse bucks up. And it was the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. It was slow and awkward. And the horse didn't even do it right. He didn't even like buck right. He kind of like fell back. And it was just it's like, what the heck is this? The whole thing. And if you watch these old TV shows, they are just so slow. Now, watch an old loon. And I love them. Don't get me wrong. I love them, but they're slow. You watch an old Looney Tunes cartoon, Bugs Bunny versus something today. Today, it is an explosion of lights and color and it is fast and it is a giant seizure. It's a nonstop seizure. You take a kid, you put him in front of this nonstop seizure of a cartoon show today for 20 minutes and then you show him a you know 30-year-old Bugs Bunny cartoon and it's like you just stuffed him with a gallons of ice cream and now you feed him kale. Not a huge interest in the kale after you just hyped him up on ice cream. We know this is true. Compared to fake screen life, real life is boring. So we constantly put kids in in fake life, fake life, fake life, fake life. We give them stimulation, 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 stimulation. And then we put them in real life, a classroom, for instance. And their brains can't tolerate it. They're truly like a crack addict. And even a second of minor boredom, an instant of boredom, and they can't take it. They freak out because they're on crack. So then we give them a fidget spinner to help them concentrate. No, you've just given them more crack. Maybe it's not crack. Maybe maybe it's, you know, uh, some other, <laughs> what's like a lighter drug? Like ecstasy. I mean, I don't know, right? It's not as crazy, but it's, but it's something else. It's not what they need. They need to be not so overstimulated all the time. Kids don't need more things to distract them. They need the skill set of concentration. If a kid needs to fidget constantly all the time, it doesn't mean that they need more stimulation. It usually means the brain is overstimulated in the first place and needs calming down. I'll give you an example of this. Just the other day, one of my best friends, uh, his middle son... Mm, how old is he? Um, 
nine, eight or nine, something like that. So shy, debilitatingly shy. Like they'll go over to a friend's house. Everyone else goes in. Dad and the middle son have to wait outside for 30 minutes getting up confidence to go inside. Then he peeks in and runs back out for 10 minutes and then comes inside and someone says hi and he runs back outside like debilitatingly shy. As of last week, no longer shy at all. Zero shyness. What happened? The week before or a couple weeks before the two boys in the family without the parents, but the two boys went to the grandparents house, which uh, is a farm in Idaho. And they spent a week doing boy stuff on a farm in Idaho, running around, getting lost, fishing, riding horses, doing boy stuff, getting dirty for a week, came back, changed boy, completely changed person. Used to need a nightlight. Now no longer needs a nightlight. Why? He slowed down. And you're thinking, oh, but kids are active. Then yeah, yeah. There's a difference between being active and being overstimulated. The kid just needed to unplug. His brain needed. His brain was just. His brain was like one of the fidget spinners, just nonstop. Went to the farm in Idaho for a week. Came back, totally different person. And you know what my buddy said? He learned to be with himself. He learned how to work through boredom and deal with it because that's what life is. There's a lot of dull moments. Life is not one giant seizure-inducing cartoon. There will not always be adults and people around you to entertain you or a screen to get your fix from. Kids don't need more stimulating quick fixes. So again, I want to be clear, a fidget spinner, like this whole segment is not about fidget spinners. It's about everything we're doing to kids that make kids need them in the first place. Need them. So what do we do? I want to end on a solution before I get to uh, Mark Devine next. The advice from this therapist is to slowly, gradually increase the time between I want and I get. All right, your kid wants something and they get it. They want it and they get it. They want it and they get it. We need to increase the time between I want and I get. We live in such a stimulating world, a highly stimulating world. Lengthening the delayed gratification time over, over a period of time and introducing some calm to our kids. Getting them to slow down, unplug, get outside, breathe some fresh air, have a uh, bonfire, whatever it takes to slow down. Adults need it and kids need it too. One eight one eight eight nine hundred thirty three ninety three. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike 
later on the Blaze Radio Network. Uh, long story short, I won't be able to do this uh, any justice that it deserves, but Mark Devine, owner of Seal Fit, 20-year Navy SEAL, gave a uh, awesome store, uh, speech the other day I went to. They, he has, this, uh, among other things, this uh, 50-hour crucible, they call it. Uh, it's modeled after the Navy SEALs Hell Week. And it's 50 hours, no sleep, straight through. And the goal is, and this is what happens every time, someone comes in with their identity, whatever it is, and by the end of the 50 hours, that poser identity is completely destroyed. And you realize that all these identities that you put out into the world that are fake, first of all, they're exhausting, and you realize they're meaningless. And they say that by the end of the 50 hours, you get to meet yourself for the first time. You meet your true self. So again, I can't do this justice, but uh, read Mark Devine's books, and uh, they're great. He says, six hours in, people meet their first mountain. It's the physical mountain. 18 hours in, their mind starts to fray, and they realize they can't even rely on their mind. That's your uh, mental mountain. Then 30 hours in, you, are, you hit your emotional mountain. You break, and you realize you can't do anything on your own. And for a lot of people, it's the first time in their life when they, they have to 100% rely on someone else. The fourth stage, about 40 hours in, that's when you reach your flow. And then the fifth hour in, or excuse me, the, the fifth stage at 50 hours, that's the spiritual mountain. This is the end. He says, this is when everything's broken and the true you is revealed. But more important than anything, that's where you connect to God. That's when you hit your spiritual awakening. Because you've taken off all of your masks that you wear every day and that you've created over your life and you can be your true self. And you must be because there's no other way to make it through this 50-hour crucible. He tells a story of his best friend in Bud's training for the SEALs, Bush. He's a big hot shot gung-ho, wanted more than anything to be a Navy SEAL, right? Navy SEAL, it's baller. It's the best thing. It's where you get the girls. So they're going through training, and one day the guys tell him to go run into the water, get all wet and sandy again. Mark starts running, and he realizes that Bush, his buddy, is running the other way. So he turns around and runs. To, oh, by the way, Bush is running towards the bell. It's the bell you ring when you want to quit. So Mark starts running back to tackle him, to stop him and try to convince him not to quit when one of the SEAL trainers jumps in front of him and tackles Mark and says, this isn't your decision, man. A few weeks go by and Mark runs into Bush and he says, man, what happened? Why'd you quit? And the guy said, in that moment, I couldn't remember why I was there. He forgot his why. And the guy said, I couldn't remember why I was there, but I realized that I've always wanted to be a veterinarian. <laughs> and it's about the importance of clarity and having a strong why. And if you're doing something to know why, because that way, no matter how big the hurdle is in front of it, you'll never quit. If the hurdle is bigger than the why, you'll quit. If the why is bigger than the hurdle, you'll never quit. And if your why is pure and true and righteous, you can't be stopped. That's a guarantee. My name's Mark Devine. Check out the book. It's good. I got a book too. You can check it out on our Facebook page, Mike Slater Show. Have a great weekend. See you next week. You're listening to Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On the Blaze Radio Network.